Summit Gathering. How we doing tonight? All right, you guys ready for a snow day tomorrow? Let's go, all right, hey. We already know my kids are gonna be home. The office is already closed. And so uh, Oklahoma, if you're not in Oklahoma and you're joining us, this is what we do. It's not even snow, we shut things down, all right? Hope you got your bread, your milk, because it's all gone by now. So hey, uh, guys, welcome back. It is good to see you. Um, we are in our third week of our Deeply Formed Life series. And uh, if you have not been with us, this is your first time. Well, let me explain really quick what this is. Basically, we, we live in a culture uh, that says, hey, cultivate and care about the surface, what people see. And we believe that God's word teaches us that it's actually what's underneath the surface that produces what people see. And so we're, gonna, we're taking some time to look through God's word to see what is the Bible, maybe what does Jesus' life teach us about a deeply formed life? That as we walk through the ups and downs, the valleys and the mountaintops and even the plateaus of life, what do we need, what can we do to live with a deeply formed life. And so I wanna start off tonight with a quick story from my childhood, my favorite family vacation ever. Uh, if you don't know, I grew up in Iowa, smack dab in the middle of the Midwest. And one summer, my parents decided we're gonna take a camper across the western part of the United States. And when I say camper, it wasn't a fancy RV. It was a pickup truck with a camper on the back. And there were four of us. And it, was a, like, it wasn't even a full cab, it was a, or like a, a king cab. It was Full front seat for my parents, and my brother and I sat in like the little half seat in the back of the pickup truck. And we went from Iowa to Yellowstone to Oregon, my home birth state, and then we went to San Francisco, and then we went down to Disneyland, and then we went back home through Las Vegas, which was super exciting as a 10-year-old. Um, and it was, it, was, it was a long trip, man. And we had no screens, no screens. Every half an hour, my mom would, would hand back a toy or a book or some crayons, and we would play you know, the, 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 the alphabet game over and over and over, like nonstop for 10 days. Maybe it was more than that. Anyway, but that trip, was, it, was, it was my favorite trip, even though we were in the car most of the time. But my favorite stop is probably gonna surprise you a little bit. It was not Disneyland, it was not Vegas. It was San Francisco. Because right outside of San Francisco is this place where these massive trees live. They're called the California redwood trees. And I had never seen, like, if you're not familiar with this, these are, these are gigantic trees. Like we've got a picture, you can drive a car through one of them, all right? We did. And I thought as a little kid, this is the coolest thing ever. We are driving through a tree. All right, and, the, and these trees, and when I say like the size, it's not like, hey, they're, they're, they're like 40, 50, 100 feet tall. No, the, the average redwood, and we've got an image for this as well, the average redwood is between 250 and 350 feet tall. All right, so it, it, that would be a 25 to 35 story building is how tall these trees are. Like they are massive. The diameter it can, can go from uh, 10 feet to 20 feet wide. The bark on these trees, it, 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 the, the biggest trees, are almost a foot thick, the bark. These are massive, massive trees. But there's something strange about these trees. And this is what I kinda wanna tee up for tonight, and that is that the root system for these trees is the opposite of what you think they would be. If there's a tree that is 20 to 25 feet wide and 300 feet tall, you would think, man, the roots must go down like 200 feet. 
No, they don't. The typical root system for a redwood is only six to 12 feet deep. I'm about six feet tall. That is not much, right? And we're, we're thinking deeply formed life. I'm like, okay, I need to find a good root analogy that goes down deep into the soil and grabs the nutrients, right? Not the redwood. The redwood is shallow roots. But here's the crazy thing, is they believe that the redwoods in California are upwards of 20 or 2,000 years old. That these trees began at the birth of Jesus. And so how in the world does a tree 300 feet high with a six to 12 foot deep root system live 2,000 years? Because you guys have been through the ice storm here a couple, was that last year, year and a half ago? Like just a little ice, trees were just coming uprooted all over the place. Here's the thing. Redwoods, their roots, they don't go down, they go out. And they grow together. And so the root system actually intertwines with each other. They wrap each other around their, each other's roots and they hold each other up. In fact, they do not just the, the, the strength thing, they actually share nutrients. When one tree needs more of one, it grabs it from another tree. They not only strengthen each other, they feed each other. This blows my mind. And here's the reason I'm telling you about California redwoods is because I believe that we are created and I believe God's word tells us that we are created to be more like redwoods than palm trees. Palm trees may look real pretty. They were good for a picture and, and they tell you, hey, this is a nice warm place, but redwoods stand the test of time. They stand strong and they stand sturdy and they stand together. In Genesis, God said that Adam, it was not good for him to be alone. And so he made a partner, a person. We were made relational beings, right? The worst, the worst kind of punishment there is, is solitary confinement, withdrawing from all other human interaction. We were made for relationships. And if we're honest, we don't live in a time where most people are willing to build this kind of community. Instead, what we, what we typically do is we settle for digital connections or at best, shallow and surfacey friendships that are just momentary and then as soon as it's inconvenient or we have an argument or they hurt our feelings, we're gone. Now, don't think that's the way God's created us. We, we were made for deeply formed relationships. And so because of the way our culture talks about relationships, because of the brokenness of ourselves and how easily we are offended, it has caused an epidemic of loneliness. And this isn't just my opinion, all right? Let me read you some facts. There's a group called the Telstra Company. They did a study that found that 54% of Gen Z and 51% of millennials report that they regularly feel lonely. 55%. That means half of this room regularly feels lonely. And that word, it's not a lonely like, hey, I don't have interaction. It's no one knows me. No one really knows who I am. They know about me, but they don't know me. Duke University and the University of Arizona 
did a study a little while back that said they found that 25%, a quarter of Americans, say they have not one close confidant, even counting their family, to talk with major things in their life about. One-fourth of our population has no one to share anything with. And it's not just a mental health issue. Physically, our bodies, science has shown that loneliness is affecting our health. The CDC has found that social isolation significantly increased a person's risk of premature death from all causes. That loneliness is a risk that may rival those of smoking, obesity, and physical inactivity. Social isolation or loneliness was associated with 29% increased risk of heart disease, 32% increased risk of stroke, and loneliness has been directly associated with higher rates of depression, anxiety, and suicide. So that's not just Andy's opinion, that is the studies of our actual people by sociologists, by psychologists saying, hey, we have an epidemic of loneliness. We may, we, we're, we're digitally connected till we, we can't be connected anymore. But when it comes to people actually knowing us, having an outlet, someone to walk through life with, we are lonely. Because we were made for relationships and we crave deep and lasting ones. And so tonight, I'm really excited to talk about one of the greatest commands that we have been given in Scripture. It's also not just a command, it's one of the greatest benefits. Because as a pastor of 20 plus years, the one thing that I've seen that's consistent is that life transformation, freedom from sin, and a joyful existence and, and following Jesus comes from community. It comes in biblical community. That's where, that's where the, the real work happens. Like it's like steroids for your faith is being with other believers, studying God's word, praying for each other and pursuing Christ together. And we intertwine our lives so that when one is weak, the strong hold them up. And so last week, Oakley did a fantastic job of talking about the value and necessity of devoting our, our lives daily to being in God's word, the Bible. That this is the foundation that we need to devote to daily for our, our nutrients and our sustenance. But tonight, I'm gonna talk about the benefit of doing life together alongside Christian community. And so if you're a note taker, my subject tonight is committing to community. And we're gonna be in Hebrews chapter 10. So I'll give you a second to get there. And as you do, I'm gonna define community because it's important that we know what we're talking about. Because everybody in here has a different definition of every single word in, in our English language, right? Like I could tell you community and we could come up with probably 20 to 50 different definitions of what you think that is, how you've experienced it. But let me just throw out a general, general definition is, is a community in general terms is our friends who you hang out with because you have a common interest. All right, that's just a, a blanket idea. This is what we talk, when we say community, I think that's what most people think about. It's like, I want some friends. Because can we just be honest? No one in high school or maybe in college ever teaches you how to make friends. They're given to you your whole life until they're not. And you're like, uh-oh, how do I do this? But here's the, here's the distinction. 
I want to talk tonight about committing to Christian community. Biblical community is different than community as our world may see it. Because you can find community anywhere. You can find it at a bar, a tailgate, a volleyball court. You can find community all over the place. But I'm talking about a deeply formed life, a deeply formed relationships and friendships that you lock together with and you do life together. You pursue Jesus. You run every major life decision by these people because they care for you and they love you and they, fo- and they follow Jesus too. They're on the same race at the same pace. All right, so here's the definition for Christian community that we're gonna use tonight. When I say the word community, this is what I mean. A group of people who believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ are united in the Holy Spirit through Christ to God the Father and are marked by the way they love one another. That is what I'm talking about. When I, from this point forward, when I say community, that's what I'm talking about. People who believe in the gospel of Jesus, who are united by the Holy Spirit and who are marked by the way they love one another, all right? So as we get into Hebrews, I just want to give you a quick, a quick little background to Hebrews. This is going to be very quick. It's a long book, but it's, it's a fantastic one. Um, we, we don't know who the author of Hebrews is, all right? Let's just be honest. We don't know that. They don't identify themselves. Some people think it's Paul. Some think it's Barnabas. But anyway, we don't know. But there are two primary pur- purposes to this book, all right? It's to encourage Christians to endure and to warn them not to abandon their faith in Christ, all right? You see, the recipients were Christians struggling to persevere in their commitment to Christ in the face of temptation and in the face of persecution. They were struggling. They were having a hard time. And almost the entire first half of Hebrews is just a simple reminder that Jesus is superior to everything. That we cannot forget the gift we have in Christ. And so, I love what Oakley did last week. Let's stand as we read scripture. Let's give us some reverence. Open your Bibles. It's gonna be on the screen so you can follow along if you'd like. Here we go. You don't have to read out loud. I'll read it. Just read along with me. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body, And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from our guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess as we, for who, sorry, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. You can grab a seat. I love this, like, so like, remember what I said, the, the Hebrews is, is reminding, the author's reminding them of the gift they have in Jesus, right? That the old covenant is gone, that the new has come. And then he reminds them, right, I've said all these things. Don't forget the gift you have in Jesus. Don't forget how good God is and the way he has loved you and provided for you. He says, therefore, brothers and sisters, 
since we have confidence to enter the most holy place, the presence of God. So he's talking about the Old Testament tabernacle. In the Old Testament tabernacle, there was the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was, and that was the presence of God. And the high priest, the, the, the go-between between the people and God would walk in with fear and trembling. That if they did not do all the things necessary to walk in purely and, and with, with, with having cleansed themselves, there was sure death waiting. And so I love this, what he said, therefore, Brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place. You see, Jesus has torn the curtain between us and God. We are now welcome. We don't need a high priest. Our high priest is Jesus. He is the one that goes. He says, uh, we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain you see, the body of Christ is our curtain to step into the presence of God. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, therefore, all right? So what he does once again is he reminds them of the good news of the gospel of Jesus, that there is a God who is holy. And our sin has separated us from him. But because God so loved the world, not just you, not just Oklahomans, not just Americans, but the whole world, that God, the creator of the universe, loved you, that he sent his son for you to make a way that you could be with God, to pay for our sin that we could not pay for, to make our relationship with God new again. And so he reminds them of that right off the top. And with that in mind, he continues. Let's look at verse 22. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. This brings me to my first point, is committing to community helps us draw near to God. Because that's what we're about. Drawing near to God is the goal, right? Because of the gospel, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart. It's not, hey, because of the gospel of Jesus, we sign our insurance policy so that when we die, we're good. Because I grew up believing like, oh, good, I said the prayer. I said a prayer when I was seven, I'm good. Now I just get to feel guilty the rest of my life, right? No, it's, it's not because of the gospel, we are to draw near, we're to lean in and draw near to God. And this can be a real challenge. Drawing near is a challenge when we are in isolation, when it's, when it's all on us, when we're by ourselves. That's why COVID, for so many in the faith, was so difficult. They couldn't be with their people. Because oftentimes in isolation, when I, in isolation, I just mean when we're by ourselves, when we're not around other Christians, the loudest voice we hear in isolation is usually our fears, our failures, our lusts, and our insecurities. When we're by ourselves, that's the loudest voice. And they keep us from drawing near to God. So Christian community is first and foremost about pursuing God together as a body of Christ. 
Christian community is not, not about finding, just, just finding friends or just having a full social calendar. It is first and foremost about pursuing Christ. That we would draw near to God because we can because of Jesus. Drawing near to God is the goal both for the individual follower of Christ and the corporate body of believers. Not only is it the goal to draw near, it's also wise to do this in community. Proverbs 18.1 says, he who isolates himself seeks his own desires. He quarrels and argues against all sound wisdom. Let me read that again. He who isolates himself seeks his own desires and he argues or quarrels against all all sound wisdom. The Andy version of that is, he who finds no room for community seeks his own desires and he is a fool. That's how I read that. Is with community comes wisdom. And that's why around here we talk about belonging, being known, and becoming like Christ. It's not just about belonging. It's not just about being known. It's about becoming like Christ and we would draw near to God. Let's continue, verse 23. It says, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. So my second point tonight is that committing to community holds us during the storms of life. Let's not forget the Hebrews, that they were the, the recipients of this, they were suffering from difficulty and discouragement. They were being persecuted. Things were not good. And so the author says, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. Let's not let go of the gospel because things are hard. Because can we be honest for a minute? Stormy seasons come. Some of you have been through one, some of you are in one, and some of us, there may be one coming around the corner. And the older we get in life, that's an, that's an assurance that we have. Life is hard. And so committing to community holds us in the storms, right? Like go back to the redwoods, they lock together. So when the storm hits, when one tree is being pushed over, the other pull it back to hold unswervingly to the hope of Jesus that we profess. You know, I've been through in the last five years some stormy seasons. Some of you who've been around, you know this. I've lost both my parents in the last five years. And my, my dad passed away in March, and then a year and a half later, my mom went on vacation to California just to see some friends, some old friends. And she got sick, and she was up in Napa Valley seeing some friends, and they got, she got to their door, and they're like, you need to go to the hospital, just by looking at her. She went to the hospital that night, and she never left. My brother and I flew out there, and we, like, we didn't know what was going on. Like, this was a storm that just came out of nowhere. And it was just kind of a, it was a big blur. Like we didn't know what to do. We didn't know who, what we were supposed to, who, what do we, you know, how do we handle this? Like, should we try and get her home? Like, what, what are all the things we can do, right? Like our minds were racing. And I get this, I'm sitting next to my mom in her ICU room and I get a text from my small group leader at the time. And, and he said, hey, um, can, I, can I swing by? And I'm like, no, I'm in Napa, California. He's like, I know, I'm, I'm right outside the door. I'm like, no, like, not, not my house, I'm not in my house. He's like, no, no, I am, I'm in the hospital 
in Napa, California. You see, he had had a business trip to San Francisco. And he decided, instead of going back to his hotel, he was gonna drive about two hours out to Napa and see if he could hang with me and check on me and see how I'm doing. And I'll tell you what, I had poured over God's word for days and days. I had prayed, I had I'd walked around the hospital pacing, listening to my favorite worship music. And those, it's like, it's like locally talked about last week, those things, those, that was the foundation that I needed to remind myself of. But when Rick showed up, it was, it was medicine for me. We didn't talk about anything earth shattering. He, he showed up when he didn't have to. He hugged me, we went and got Burger King, he drove me back, we prayed, and he left. But he helped me hold unswervingly to the hope that I profess, just because he was there. Because he was my community. Proverbs 17, seven says a friend loves at all times and a brother is born for a time of, of, of adversity. First Peter five, eight and nine says be sober minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing, catch this, knowing that at the same time, or the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. You see, when we're, when we're isolated from Christian community, we start to believe that we're the only ones. We're the only ones struggling with this. We're the only ones feeling like this. We're the only ones thinking like this. And that's where depression and anxiety and suicidal thoughts come rushing in because we're alone. And our enemy has a, has a party on you. He goes to town when we're in isolation with the doubts and the worries and the anxieties that you're alone. But here's the deal. When we're in community, when we have people that know us, we're locked together. And when anxiety hits, and when worry overtakes you, they can speak truth into you because here's the deal. When we're weak, very often your community is strong. When you are anxious, they are at peace. And they can speak biblical truth to remind you that God is working all things out for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. They can be strong. They can feed you when you need nutrients. So what do we do before and during the storms? We put ourselves under the authority of God's word and God's spirit and we walk alongside God's people. God's word, God's spirit with God's people. Deeply formed life. Ecclesiastes 4.9, Solomon says, two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. For if one falls down, his companion can lift him up. But pity the one who falls without another to help him up. Pity those who are alone, who isolate themselves. They're the fool. We pity them. So committing to Christian community is for our protection and benefit in the midst of storms but it is also a protection and benefit to our brothers and sisters in Christ. You see, we cannot enter into Christian community with a me-only mentality. It is a we mentality. That God might want to use you to hold someone else up. 
And so we need to be very aware and, and, and really on guard against this idea that I'm gonna customize my community to everything I want it to be. And if it's not, then I'm not going to do it. Because maybe there's someone in that group of people that actually needs you more than you need them. Let's continue. Verse 24, and let us consider, right? Hold, hold unswervingly, and let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. This is my third point. Committing to community is a catalyst for our faith, right? It's a catalyst. Like, like I don't know what's going on in my house, but I've had to jump all, all three vehicles at our house in the last two weeks. I don't know what's happening. Well, I do know what's happening. I have children. They turn the dome light on and they leave the, like they play in my car. And like, ugh. anyway, that's a whole nother conversation I'm gonna have later. But here's the deal. That, that word spur on means to ignite. And so the way I read this is put the jumper cables on the dead heart, the stagnant heart that won't start. And can we just be honest? Sometimes in our faith, we get stagnant. We get dry. And we're like, I don't feel it. I don't want to community. They step in and they put the jumper cables on your faith and they're like, let's go. Spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Because what ends up happening if we're alone and we get stagnant and if we are stagnant too long, we, our faith, it just goes dormant. And it makes us want to avoid community because we feel bad because we've been gone so long and then we'll have to explain why, where we were, right? It's in biblical community that we find people who are running the same race and can spur us on when we are tired, discouraged, anxious, or afraid. First Peter 3.8, Peter writes, but grow in the grace and knowledge of your Lord Jesus Christ. The apostle Peter is saying, grow in grace and in knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and forever. He's saying, hey, let's go. Let's do something with our faith. Let's not be stagnant. Let's grow in our faith. Proverbs 27, 17, so famous, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. Here's the crazy thing about it. Like, it sounds really good. It looks good for a t-shirt like when you're in high school and you're lifting weights or something. You're like, iron sharpens iron. Let's go, bro. You know, like, like that. I've seen them. But have you ever sharpened a knife? It is an unpleasant sound right? Because iron is sharpening itself. But here's the deal. Sharpening makes that tool more useful to do what it was created to do. And so will there be difficulty in community? Absolutely. Will there be some, some uh, friction in relationships? Absolutely. But God would use community to sharpen you to live the life you were created to live. And so we welcome the friction John 13, Jesus says himself in verse 34, love one, I give you a new command. Love one another as I have loved you. When you love people the way I love you, they will know that you are my disciples. It's in community that we encourage one another, pray for each other, bear burdens with one another, care for each other, correct and serve one another, confess sin to one another, comfort one another, be kind to one another, teach one another and honor one another. It's in Christian community. And I would argue that's the only place I've ever seen this happen where people can honor and care for and correct and teach and confess in a safe environment is because we sit at the foot of the cross 
where our sins are already forgiven. And so we can do it safely and in a healthy way in biblical community. Because biblical community is not just about one, one person. It's not just about you. And the great thing about this, the way that Jesus has designed it, right? He said, go and love one another as I have loved you. Well, how did Jesus love us? He died for us. He gave up all of his rights, all of his privilege, all of his power, and said, I'm going to come live the life you have. I'm gonna experience your life, and then I'm gonna die on a cross for you. That's how he loved you. And so we are to do the same. We are to give up ourselves to love one another. Because let's be honest, sometimes in Christian community, there are people who are annoying. We're not perfect, right? People that talk too much. People that don't talk at all. People that are annoying. Like, I mean, they're just, we're not perfect people. But Jesus said, hey, love the way I have loved you. And it's, it's, it's sacrificial. And so we encourage and pray for and bear burdens with. You see, biblical community breathes life into a weary soul. It is a life preserver for a drowning heart. So we commit to community that we might encourage one another, live faithfully, shaped by the hope we have in Jesus and marked by the love of love and good deeds. Lastly, verse 24 and 25. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some in, are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. So my last point is committing, committing to community is intentional, not accidental. Committing to community is intentional, not accidental. Let me put it a different way. Biblical community is forged, it is not found. Like we wanna find community. Here's the deal, if you, if you can find it, you can leave it. But if you forge it, if you build it, if you put effort into it, instead of leaving it, you fight for it. And it's an intentional thing that we do. Like in the American church, there's this term called church hopping, right? Like that's an actual term that we use because we won't commit. We won't actually dig some roots down and say, this is where I'm gonna be planted. I'm gonna trust God that he's gonna use these people to encourage me and help grow me and he's gonna use me to help grow and encourage them. Because there is no perfect church. There is no perfect small group. There is no perfect ministry. And so we have to make it, that decision here and that commitment here that I'm going to be a contributor to community instead of a consumer. I'm gonna step into it and add to it. I'm gonna say, God, I trust you with my community. It may not be the one I pick out for myself, thank goodness, but God is faithful to use people his spirit and his word to shape you and form you in ways that if, if, if you chose, you would never grow. There's a German pastor and theologian that lived in, during World War II and he died in a concentration camp for fighting Nazis. His name is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He wrote a book called Life Together and it's about Christian community. He says this, the person who loves their dream of community will destroy community but the person who loves those around them will create community. And I cannot tell you how true that is. What we wanna do is we wanna Starbucks customize order our community. 
that people would look like us, think like us, be interested in the things we're interested in. Guys, the only prerequisite for biblical community is that they love Jesus. That's it. And then trust God with the rest. If you have an argument or disagreement with someone, guess what? God wants to grow you in biblical conflict resolution. Let's do it. If you're not doing the, the activities that you want to do, then maybe God wants to grow in you patience. Or if there's someone that, that, that doesn't see the way you see the Bible or, or, or the world or, or relationships, that, that God might use them to open your eyes to see maybe something about yourself or something about his word that you wouldn't have already seen. Biblical community is forged and not found. It is intentional, not accidental. In Acts 2, 42 through 47, it says they, the disciples, devoted themselves, right? Intentional. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to breaking of bread and to prayer. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This isn't even one of my points, but it's through community people get saved. Not in isolation. It's because we do life with people. They see our convictions. They, they hear the, the hope of the gospel. But community, let's, let's call it what it is. Community requires commitment. Matthew 5, 37, Jesus says, all you need to say is simply yes. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. As Christians, our yes should mean something. It shouldn't mean I'll do it as long as it's convenient. I'll do it as long as nothing else comes up on the social calendar, right? Like we need to plan our, our, our biblical community and let the social calendar be secondary versus the other way. Because there's always something to do. There's always something to like, oh, I'll skip this week. So plan your schedule or your schedule will be planning you. So in review, commit, committing to community one, helps us draw near to God. Two, holds us in the storms of life, is a catalyst to our faith, and is intentional, not accidental. So let me leave you with three so what's very quickly. Number one, I wanna challenge you to commit to community. Quit isolating. I know there's a lot of good reasons to commit to community. Find a church, dig your roots. If it's a crossings, let's dig in. Let's do ministry together. Let's do life together. If it's another church and you come here on Tuesday nights as a supplement to your church because maybe they don't have young adult stuff, whatever, dig in, serve there. But commit to community. Secondly, when you commit to community, commit to forging the community, right? Let's not, let's not have our checklist of prerequisites and, re and requirements for, for you to, to engage, Forge community, don't wait to find it. Because I know I'm too fickle that I'll never find it. I have to forge it. And then three, in that community that you've committed to, as you forge it, commit to drawing near to God in community. Let's keep the main thing the main thing. Because a lot of times what ends up happening is we drift and it becomes a social club or a dinner club or a, a weekend watch party club or just something to do Friday night club versus, hey, let's, let's, keep the main, let, let's keep pursuing Jesus. When we get together, let's talk about our faith. Maybe not the whole time, that's fine. Talk about the game, whatever. Talk about work. 
but let's keep the main thing the main thing. Let's lean in and draw near to God because we are able to because of Jesus. When we do these things, when we commit to community, here's what's gonna happen. In very short order, you're gonna look up and realize you are living amongst the redwoods. You're gonna realize that these people care for you and that they are for you and that they are pursuing Jesus with you and you're gonna look up and be like, man, I got, some, I got my people. We are intertwined here, let's go. And all of a sudden, the life that you live, you'll start understanding what Jesus means when he said, I came to give life and life to the full. Because you were made relational. So let's enter and commit to relationship. Guys, here's what we're gonna do every week. We've kind of ended uh, with some quiet time. We're gonna do that again. We're gonna put Hebrews 10, 19 through 25 up on the screens. And we're just gonna let it sit silent for a little while. All right, we're just, I'm gonna let you read it. I wanna let you marinate it in a little bit. Maybe read through it. If something sticks out to you, pray it. Turn it into a prayer. Maybe you're in a season where you're in a storm. Pray this scripture. Maybe you're, you're in isolation. Maybe you're looking for a community. Like, God, I want this. Help me find it. Give me the boldness to sign up and commit. But we're gonna leave it on the screens for just a few minutes. And we're gonna rest silently before the Lord, bringing his scripture before him in prayer. And I'll come back up here in a minute and we'll read through this together.